Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we begin this morning in verse 11. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul is vindicating the gospel because Israel's failure, Israel's rejection presents a problem for the integrity of the gospel, a difficulty. If God chose Israel, if God made covenant promises to them, revealed himself in the law to them, but that law could only condemn and not actually justify them before God, then aren't God's sovereignty and or his trustworthiness called into question? Paul explains that, first of all, God's word has not failed. Israel's rebellion, Israel's hardness of heart, does not mean that God's word has failed to accomplish what God has promised to do. It does not mean that all of the promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have now been somehow derailed. Secondly, Paul explains that God is proven to be both just and blameless, to be righteous and fair and blameless in how he exercises his sovereignty. Thirdly, Paul makes the point that Israel is also culpable. Israel is guilty and is accountable to God for their unbelief, for their rejection of Jesus and the gospel. But Paul also makes the point that Israel is at the same time being preserved, that there is a remnant, that God in fulfilling his promises is always in a at work in preserving Israel by always saving a remnant. There is always an element of faith within Israel. And now starting in Romans chapter 11 verse 11, Paul finishes his argument by confirming Israel's hope that God is not through with the nation of Israel. Understanding Israel's future, by the way, is a dividing point between evangelical Christians, and by evangelical, I mean Christians who, who are committed to the gospel. Some say that national Israel has no future in God's program. That when Israel rejected their Messiah... God set the nation aside. That was the last straw. They had broken the covenant completely by rejecting Christ. And that God has now set them aside and has replaced the nation of Israel with the church. The church then is the new people of God that has displaced the old people of God. Others believe that Israel has a future as a nation that the church has not replaced Israel, but 
that God has temporarily set Israel aside as a nation and is at the present time in this age or era accomplishing his will, his saving purposes in the world. He's accomplishing those through the church. But will someday deal with Israel again as a national people. Now, how you understand Israel's future will determine how you understand the nature of the church, who is the church, and how uh, or what role the church plays in God's purposes and plans. In turn, then, how you understand the the nation of Israel and the nature of the church and the role of the church in God's purposes and plans will also then determine how you understand the end times, how you understand the future prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. So these two views then form the bases for two theological systems in the Christian faith. And in fact, there is a lot of confusion a lot of times over why we're divided. Why, why aren't we Presbyterian? Why don't we baptize infants? Those things are all linked to this belief, this understanding of who Israel is and who the church is. These two theological systems then are covenant theology and dispensational theology. In the broadest terms, it is these two systems. Now, a study of these two systems might be very interesting, at least to some of you, but it does lay outside the scope of this message. But even so, what Paul says in these chapters, especially Romans chapter 11, is key to how we understand the church and even God's future program for salvation and for history. Even how we interpret many other passages of scripture. Now having said that, let me pray for us and then we will take Romans 11 verses 11 through 36 in large portions today, all right? Lord, we come before you and and humble our hearts and ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that you would give us discernment, that you would give us ears to hear, soft hearts to follow you, Lord, that we would, that we would set aside, we would repent of any pride or um, any independence, any kind of confidence in our own wisdom, Lord, that we would hear from your word where you have revealed yourself. We ask this in your name. Amen. I want you to see today then Israel's hope. Israel's hope. How Israel's future is confirmed by God's purposes and plans, his designs, how he is working out salvation in the world and especially then how God's purposes for Israel affect us as a church. And Paul is writing to the Roman believers, but he is also writing for all Christians of all ages to follow, and that includes even us today at Crossway. So first of all, we see that Israel's hope ensures blessing. Israel's hope ensures blessing. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. 
So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul uses this word stumble to refer to Israel's failure to believe in Christ. Israel's failure to obtain the righteousness that they sought. Earlier in this chapter, Paul points out that they have actually tripped over their own righteousness. They have tried to establish their own righteousness and disobeyed the gospel. But, Paul says, this does not mean that they fall that they are beyond recovery, that they are destined to permanent spiritual ruin. Instead, the offer of salvation to the rest of the world aims to make Israel jealous. In verse 13, Paul even says that he magnifies his own ministry. His ministry, the apostle to the Gentiles, it was Paul's primary calling to to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. In other words, he works hard to enlarge his ministry, to expand it so that the Jewish people will become jealous and be saved. He longs for them to recognize the truth of the gospel and its meaning for them. This is why when Paul would go to a city that had not received the gospel yet in the Roman Empire, he would start where? In the synagogues. He would go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews. He would reason with the Israelites, primarily their leadership. And he would go back to the the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and he would show that this Jesus, whom they all had heard about and they knew about, he was the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Hebrew scriptures. And he would argue that point and he would show them and he would appeal to them. He would plead with them. And it is when they would reject him that he would then go to the Gentiles and he would begin to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was the pattern. If you go read the book of Acts, that's the pattern. This is why Paul is is hoping that the Jews as a people will see the blessings in the church that the Gentiles are receiving and come to Christ. Now look again at verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So what this means is that Israel, uh, Israel has stumbled, but it has not fallen, and it is destined for full inclusion. Paul's logic is clear. If God has designed that their stumbling, their trespass, their failure be the means 
the channel through which he provides righteousness for the rest of the world. This is the righteousness that Israel missed. Salvation. That if he provides this to the rest of the world through their stumbling, then what what does their full inclusion mean? What kind of riches? That's what the riches is here. The salvation, righteousness. Their full inclusion must mean even greater blessing for the rest of the world. Verse 15 puts it another way and actually specifies more about this future blessing. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So you can see the parallels with verse 12. Their rejection here, their rejection by God is their trespass, their failure. Reconciliation is the riches. Acceptance is the same as full inclusion. Life from the dead is the much more. This is the greater blessing. So, Paul is reasoning again, if God's rejection of Israel opens the way for those outside of Israel to be reconciled to him, then God's acceptance of Israel means life from the dead. Life from the dead. Now Paul is saying then that if you go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, that the whole world, the human race that is living in rebellion against God, that is suppressing the truth of God, Israel, who receives the law, their disobedience, their trespass, their failure to receive the righteousness that God provides in their Messiah through his death and resurrection has opened now the way of salvation to all of the human race. And then if Israel is accepted again, It means life from the dead. This is the life that is given to God's people after they have been resurrected from the dead. This is another way of saying eternal life. So this much more looks forward to the end. This greater blessing, the blessing that is ensured, looks forward to when Christ has come in glory, when he has raised his people to immortality, But what is so significant about what Paul says here and the way he explains it here is that this is triggered by God's acceptance of Israel, which means that in God's program, Israel must experience a salvation before the end can come. In this way, Israel's hope ensures blessing. Not only for Israel, but for all saints and believers, past, present, and future. Israel's hope ensures this future blessing, life from the dead. Secondly, Israel's hope forbids arrogance. Israel's hope forbids arrogance. Romans chapter 11, verse 16. If the dough... Offered as first fruits is holy, 
so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul introduces here an extended metaphor, a colorful image that explains the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and the people of God. That's what the olive tree is. The olive tree here is a symbol of the people of God as a whole in its broadest sense. The tree spans all of history the Old Testament and the New Testament after Christ. And it includes all who belong to God. The root of the tree is the patriarchs to whom the promises of salvation were first given. The natural branches are the Jewish people descended from the patriarchs. The wild olive shoot or branch, is the Gentile believers. The metaphor explains how God has included Gentiles in salvation history. It is by cutting off the natural branches and grafting in the wild shoots. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is what Paul has already said, that Israel has been hardened, has been rejected by God so that God could open up the way for the rest of the world to know him, to be included into the people of God. It is true, verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief. Now this is interesting because... Paul says, you are right, 
in that the original branch, the natural branch, was broken off for the purpose of you being grafted in. But what caused, in this case, or what led to their being broken off was their unbelief. Here we go again. Here is this tension. God has broken off the natural branch, cut it off, so that the wild olive shoot can be grafted into the people of God. And yet, they were cut off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So listen, Paul is forbidding arrogance in Gentile Christians over and against Israel. This has immediate implications for the church in Rome because there is conflict going on between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. And in Rome, the Gentile believers way outnumber the Jewish believers. That's why he talks so much about Israel and the law and what it means to be a Jewish believer and how both Gentiles and Jews come under God's judgment. Nobody gets a pass. In chapters 12 through 15... Especially in chapter 14, Paul is going to address more practical conflicts between Jews and Gentiles within the church and how to love one another and how to navigate those things. But this warning here is based on three realities. Number one, you are supported by the root. And Paul says, I am speaking to Gentiles. So he is addressing Gentiles in the church. You are supported by the root. God's salvation comes to you through them, not the other way around. Your justification, your eternity depend on God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel. This is the nourishing root that we share in. Secondly, you can be removed Verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Just as Israel was cut off because of unbelief, so Gentiles will face judgment if we do not continue by trusting in God's grace. Or kindness is the word Paul uses in verse 22. Continue in kindness in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Paul is emphasizing here the, the need for perseverance, as the New Testament does in other places. Final salvation requires a continuing in the faith. It requires finishing the race. And Paul is, is pointing out that you are where you are because you have believed God, not because you have achieved it. Israel, as a natural branch, was cut off because of its unbelief and in God's sovereign purposes made available now for the grafting in of the Gentiles. His real point here is that God isn't partial. He doesn't play favorites. We don't have some advantage over Israel as if we can boast in anything other than God's kindness. 
and that boasting or becoming proud and not fearing God actually belongs to unbelief, not faith. A third reason or basis for this warning is that they will be regrafted in. They will be regrafted in. Verse 24. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If you who didn't belong could be added, then those who have already belonged will belong again. That's what Paul is saying. So Israel's hope forbids arrogance on the part of Gentiles. God warns us not to presume upon his kindness by treating Israel with contempt and thinking that we have replaced them as the focus of God's program in history. Thirdly, Israel's hope is salvation. Israel's hope is salvation. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Lest you be wise in your own sight, just in case you think you know a lot more than you actually do, Paul reveals a mystery. This word mystery means something that was hidden but is now revealed. Understanding God's purposes in salvation comes only through revelation. It does not come through our ingenuity. It does not come through our cleverness. It is not discerned by our logic. It is not won by our presumption. It must be revealed. And Paul is saying, I am revealing a mystery. There is a peace here that you can only know as the church you can only know because God has revealed it and I am explaining it. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. This mystery unfolds in stages in God's plan. And this is the first one. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, a few times already, Paul has made it clear that God has hardened Israel. This is part of Paul's explanation that God is, is both just and blameless in his sovereignty, in his election. God can have mercy on whom he has mercy and does not have mercy on who he does not have mercy. He has mercy and he hardens. It is partial 
in that not all of Israel is hardened. Remember, there is a remnant. Some come to Christ in faith. In God's program, in his plan, that remnant is coming into the church are being saved, or being part of this new man, this new humanity that God is creating by bringing together Jew and Gentile to be the body of Christ, the church. Again, Ephesians chapter two makes that crystal clear. So there is always a remnant. But it is also a partial hardening in that the hardening is temporary. It is not permanent because the hardening is only for this time, a certain time frame. And that time frame ends when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the the next stage that unfolds. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in, meaning that God has determined a certain number of Gentiles to be saved and come into the kingdom. When this is accomplished, when this has reached fullness, the hardening of Israel will be removed. And we don't know when that is. The Bible never tells us a date, and never projects a a length of time, how long this age is, when that will take place. But it points out that this idea that, that God is just out there kind of hoping people will be saved, that people will come to him, is not, does not square with what Paul says about a sovereign God working out his purposes and salvation in the world. God has ordained a certain number. There is a fullness, and when it reaches that number, it will trigger the salvation of Israel. That's the next stage. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So it is only at the fulfillment of this event that Israel will be saved. But what does he mean all Israel will be saved? This is a much debated topic, okay? If you do any reading in Romans or any study, this becomes one of the the most uh, controversial statements in the entire letter. All Israel will be saved. Well, it's clear that The Apostle Paul can't mean that every individual Israelite will be saved. He's speaking of a corporate whole. Something like we might say, the whole world will be watching the World Cup. We don't mean every individual, but the world as a whole, as a corporate entity, will be watching the World Cup. Paul has already made the point that not everyone in national Israel is true Israel. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, not all who are from Israel are Israel. In other words, not all who are naturally born ethnically Israelite actually belong to Israel as the elect people of God. So, he could mean here 
that all of true Israel will be saved, that the elect from among the ethnic Israel, the elect Israel who believe in Christ, their salvation will be accomplished. But I think it most likely that Paul is referring here to the nation of Israel at a particular point in time. There will come a time when God will fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel by saving the whole nation as it exists at that point in time when God saves them. The hardness will be lifted and Israel as a nation, as a corporate whole, will turn and will repent and embrace Christ in faith. When does that happen? Well, that time is at the end. It's at the very end. It is at the appearing of Christ in the judgment of the world. Really, to work through all of those things would require a bit of a rabbit trail for several weeks in theology and eschatology. And I don't want to pursue that at this time. But this is when it will take place. This is what these verses from Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 are describing, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul brings these scriptures from the prophet Isaiah to bear to describe something that has yet to happen. When will this take place? This isn't something that has been fulfilled. Paul is saying this is something that has yet to happen in the future. How is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? It's going to be when the fullness of the Gentiles has been accomplished. When Christ returns and he saves Israel. And so for the time being, verse 28 As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So even this hardening of Israel has not uh, undone or permanently disabled God's elective purposes in saving the nation of Israel. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The branch has been cut off so that we can be grafted in. But as regards election, that is not overturned. It's not thwarted. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So even though as a corporate people, Israel has rejected the gospel, they still have a hope. They still have a future, a role to play in salvation Because of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, these are the forefathers. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be called back. God never goes back on his word. God's word never fails to accomplish his will. And why would Paul declare this truth if Israel was permanently done for? 
But how has God accomplished such a thing? How has God hardened Israel to open salvation to outsiders, but still fulfill irrevocable promises to Israel? How has he done this? And the answer is mercy. Mercy. Verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God. Stop. Rewind. Romans chapter 1. Just as at one time you were outside of the covenant. Outside of a relationship to God. Knowing his glory. Witnessing his power but suppressing the truth and given over by God. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Israel's disobedience is God's channel of mercy to us. And in turn, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So God's mercy to us is God's channel of mercy to them. Their disobedience is God's channel of mercy to us. God's mercy to us is God's channel of mercy back to them. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We are all disobedient. We are all lost rebels. God's mercy is all any of us has. And it is God's mercy that is the foundation for all of the exhortations beginning in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I beseech you, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. So, instead of Israel's failure being evidence that God's word has failed or that God has acted unjustly, that God has acted with duplicity, Israel's stumbling fulfills God's purposes in saving the human race, in bringing salvation. And he does so in ways that we can never fathom, according to designs we could never discover, which is why Paul erupts in the doxology of praise in verses 33 through 36. Israel's hope magnifies God. Israel's hope magnifies God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. God's purposes and designs are beyond our comprehension. And how God accomplishes his purposes transcends our analysis, our understanding. 
It's interesting, isn't it? We, we want to apply these things. Well, what does that mean for life to me today? But really what God wants to do is transport, transcend your thinking outside of yourselves and enable us to see his plans and purposes on a huge scale. And our place in those designs, in those purposes. No one has influenced God. No one has advised him. No one has made a recommendation of a certain course of action to God. And God said, you know what, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. No one has helped God see things from a different perspective. Nor has anyone done God a service or a favor putting God in his debt. Because he is the origin and he is the end of all. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Even we at times tend to take on this shallow thinking that somehow we've done God a service, that we've done God a favor. God owes no man anything. God owes no man or person revelation. He owes no one an explanation. He is God. Israel's hope magnifies God. Now, you could take these verses, 33 through 36, and they are magnificent and beautiful in and of themselves. And you could say them and sing them every day, and they would be worship. But Paul puts them here in the context of these purposes and designs of how God has hardened Israel, saved the Gentile world, and will save again Israel. Those are the the judgments and the knowledge and the wisdom of God that are beyond our fathoming and beyond even our searching. So listen, Israel's hope vindicates the gospel. Because God's plan is much bigger than rejecting Israel and replacing them with the church. The church which includes both Jews and Gentiles. In this age, in the age of the church where God is fulfilling his purposes in the world through the the church as the body of Christ, Gentiles being saved, this is fulfilling only part of the plan. So the practical implications then, the ways to think about the nation of Israel are really, I think, boiled down to two important thoughts. First of all, for now, Israel remains hardened. Now that is, as a nation, we know that there are individuals, Jews, who come to Christ, who come to faith. And we have to be careful not to Americanize a relationship with the nation of Israel. And what I mean by that is we are, I think, tempted sometimes to think of America's spiritual status 
with whether or not we are politically allied with the nation state of Israel. It may be politically best, it may be politically wise for the United States to be allied with the nation state of Israel. But this says little, if anything, about our own country's spiritual state. The United States doesn't have an alliance, and I'm not trying to get super political here. The United States does not have whatever alliance it has with Israel because of theological truth and God's promises to Israel as his people. It does not mean that the United States will receive blessing because we have a political alliance with Israel. Not now, not at this present time. Someday, the nations as a whole, their relationship to the nation of Israel will matter. That comes at the end. But for now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And as the church, we preach Christ. We proclaim Christ. We preach salvation in Christ only to Jew and Gentile, everybody. We preach the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, right? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel to Jews. We preach the gospel to Palestinians. We preach the gospel. But secondly, Romans chapters 9 through 11 are clear that Israel has a future. That one day, God will deal with them as a nation again. That in his plans of salvation, as he works out those purposes, he will once again bring salvation to the national people group of Israel. One day, they will know his blessing, the fulfillment of all of his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's what the whole Bible is recording as its large narrative is its main storyline, the kingdom of God. God will accomplish. God will fulfill his promises. And what that means is that there is no superiority. There's no superiority of the church over and against the nation of Israel, and there is no superiority within the church of Gentiles over and against Jewish brothers and sisters, which we will see had particular implications in the church of Rome. Father, these things are, as Paul writes here, beyond our comprehension because you are. We still stand in awe at how little we know and how little we understand. And yet what you have revealed, Lord, is clear. And Lord, it humbles us. We want to be your people who fear you, who revere you, who live life knowing that you are on your throne. Lord, that you have not received counsel from anyone, that through you and to you and from you are all things. 
our hearts long to worship. And Lord, we cannot worship you if we, if we try to fit you into a bottle like a genie. You are the one true God. And even if we cannot comprehend all of your designs and purposes, Lord, we trust you. We believe you. And we want to follow you even today and the days that follow. Lord, would you empower us? Lord, would you, would you work in our hearts in such a way that we would be zealous for these purposes of yours in the world to save through the gospel. In your name we ask these things, amen.